Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. This is your host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. I am your second week of the month host, trying to trying to fill the shoes of Gene Wilhelm, our longtime Red Sea Roundup second week of the month host. Gene, if you're listening, cheers to you. Heartfelt thanks for your years of service. Go out to you. Very glad to be with you this morning on Red Sea Roundup. You might be catching us on KDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. Perhaps you are listening on our website, redsearadio.org, or maybe you're catching us on one of our two iPhone or Android apps where you can get the KDC stream or the Central Texas stream as you see fit. But wherever you are and however you're listening, we're glad you're here. Uh, I've got a great show lined up for you today. In the second part of the show, we're going to be talking with Katie Faust. She is the director and founder of Them Before Us, which is a global children's rights movement uh, you know probably that social justice is very much in the in the news these days, very much a concern, and 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 so it should be. Um, we want you know justice is uh, doing, giving each person their due uh, according to their human dignity because they have dignity as human beings, and children especially are in need of justice because they cannot provide for themselves things like. Uh, shelter, food, education. They cannot uh, give to themselves emotional support, a sense of identity, a sense of rootedness. All of that comes from the family. Our Catholic religion teaches us that. The natural law teaches us that and shows us that because we are all raised in a family. We are products of the mother and the father. We have a biological rootedness and an origin and Katie and her and her movement are getting us back to that fundamental truth that children have a natural right to their mother and their father they have a natural right to biological identity they have a natural right to the gender specific um, parenting of their mother and their father and we're going to talk all about that and educate you on how to make that argument with clarity and charity. Get out um, the notepads. Get out the notepads. So I'm very excited to talk with her in the second part of the show. Uh, we want to give you some updates and um, some news. I think maybe a really important thing to to remind people, uh, Dennis, and you heard Dennis there in the background, is uh, our benefit dinners are mm-hmm. on the horizon. They're yeah. on the horizon. November 17th here in the Bryan College Station area and November 18th in Central Texas, we are going to be hosting our benefit dinner and our keynote speaker is going to be none other than 
Father Know-It-All. Father <laughs> Richard Simon, the one, the only. People are very excited about him. Yes. I, I got a especially wonderful registration yesterday. Talked to her in person. Uh, we'll just say Debbie. We'll call her. That's her name, but I won't give last name just for uh, for respect out of their privacy. But uh, Debbie and her husband are coming. Debbie is a Protestant listener to Red Sea Catholic Radio, and her husband is a Jewish listener to Red Sea Catholic Radio, mm-hmm. and both of them love Father Richard Simon and his show, Father Simon Says. So it's pretty and, cool. And if you listen to Father Richard Simon, you know that he is uh, he makes many, many references to mm-hmm. uh, Judaism. He's very well-versed in Judaism. I believe he is at least a fluent reader of Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not surprised that uh, Miss Debbie's husband would be um, certainly intrigued. Yeah, listening so we're to very Trump. excited but about them coming. But it- let's make a point. You said uh, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement around this benefit dinner. That means that registrations, table registrations, and <laughs> ticket purchases are coming in at a faster-than-normal clip. We it's are filling way up faster than normal. Yeah, we are over two-thirds full here in the Bryan College Station and that is, area. That's very early to be that full. It is way early to be that full. So, um, And we're about half, half capacity in Waco as well. So that likely as well is, is, is uh, you know, that's way in advance. So if you're wanting your table and t- and or tickets... Uh, we have some groups that are getting a third table, uh, just reported recently. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Uh, people are piling in, and we're going to have this probably be our most populated benefit dinner to date. So it, it, it is imperative Dinners. that you register, purchase that table, or purchase those tickets as soon as possible. Do not delay. We are not uh, just blowing smoke here. No. It's a, it's a, it's a going to be a full house. We're very excited about it. So... You can do that by going to redcradio.org, red, the letter C, radio.org, and click on the Benefit Dinner banner with Father Richard Simon's beautiful face on the front or uh, the the button down below that says Benefit Dinners. And make sure you click the correct one, uh, because if you're here in the Bryan College Station area, you'll be at the Brazos Center, the Brazos Valley Benefit Dinner, on the 17th of November. On the 18th of November, You'll be on a Friday night in West, or, or tours specifically, just north of Waco for our Central Texas Benefit Dinner. And uh, make sure you click on the right spot, uh, but always give us a call if you have any questions about registering or if you need to uh, uh, ask about the Benefit Dinner itself. We'll be glad to take your call. You can call me at my cell phone number, which is 979-255-2633. Dennis Maka, again, is my name but redcradio.org. We'd love to see you at the benefit dinner. And uh, once again, I had another person uh, walk up to the studio yesterday and said, I don't want to miss this. This is always my favorite event of the year. Not just benefit dinner of the year, but it's the favorite event because we have so much fun. That is high praise. Very high praise. It really was. I was very happy to hear that. Now, Dennis said that he is looking forward to seeing you and we're looking forward to seeing you at the benefit dinner. And that's true. And we want you to be there. But especially if you know that you're not going to be able to be at the benefit dinner and you still want to help out the Red Sea Apostolate, you still want to support us and you want to make as much of an impact as you possibly can, well, we've got that opportunity for you because next week, next Tuesday, October 18th, 18th, 
is Brazos Valley Gives. Brazos Valley Gives is sponsored by the Community Foundation of the Brazos Valley, and it's a one-day giving event for all um, nonprofits in the Brazos Valley to encourage their donors and their supporters to to give and give generously, and we are doing that again this year, and we have a very, very uh, kind donor who has offered a $5,000 match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we are looking for is we're looking for you to contribute. You can actually go to the community. Uh, you can go to BrazosValleyGives.org right now, already yep. right now. Early giving is open. Early giving is open. BrazosValleyGives.org, and you can give to support Red Sea Apostolate, and that includes supporting our newest venture, Victory Sports. You know, it's it's part of our apostolate. So if you are a Victory Sports family, if you believe in that uh, part of our mission, you're going to be supporting it by supporting Brazos Valley, supporting Red Sea Apostolate at BrazosValleyGives.org. So if you go to the top of the page at BrazosValleyGives.org and search for the word red in the organization search tab, uh, you'll find us right away. It's going to come right up. Boom. Boom. Yeah. $5,000 match, so that means dollar-for-dollar match, so we're hoping to generate $10,000 in giving. Especially if you're not able to come to the benefit. Especially if you're not able to come. This is a great way to make an awesome impact for Red Sea Apostolate and for the religious education of the domestic church, the support and catechesis and evangelization of the family here in Brazos Valley, and also it's a way uh, our Waco listeners can get involved too. They can just go to BrazosValleyGives.org. Can, again, can start right now, or you can give on the day of, Tuesday, October 18th. Don't miss out um, your chance to give and support us with Brazos Valley Gives. So, I mentioned Victory Sports, Dennis. Yep. We are in the middle of our first ever flag football and volleyball seasons for kids in first through sixth grade. They're playing uh, together on teams at the parishes here in the Brazos Valley. We are getting such great responses, and there's so much uh, just excitement and enthusiasm one of my mm-hmm. favorite scenes that happened this week, this last weekend, uh, we had our volleyball games at St. Anthony's Parish, and we had highlighted Our Lady of the Rosary. That was our feast day that we highlighted last week. We talked about October being the month of the rosary and encouraged families participating to to make an extra effort to pray the rosary this month. And I saw this beautiful scene when we finished on Saturday. A family of five going through the rosary garden there at uh, St. Anthony's, praying the rosary together as a family. They had picked a, a packed a, a brown paper bag lunch, and they were walking and praying the rosary together. Um, and this was a family, this was not a St. Anthony's family, this was a family from another one of the parishes in town, and they had been uh, exposed to, you know, that rosary garden there at St. Anthony's, and they were they were living out their Catholic faith at a at a different parish in town, and they had been encouraged to do that through participating in Victory yep. Sports. So I just think it's 
it's a great example of what we're trying to do with that experience yeah. of the beauty of the faith through the beauty of sport. You're not going to get that through other sports leagues here in town, the city league or, or over at other churches. You're going to get that through victory sports, uh, exposure to the beauty of the Catholic faith and integral, integral, that is, uh, uh, communication to the parents and the kids about the faith through their activities in sports. So it's, yeah, every week we hand. highlight a different virtue. Every week we are coaching up our coaches to show in a particular drill or maybe in a game situation how the virtues of the Catholic moral life are at stake and engaged and are being developed and we really want you to check this out and join us for our basketball league. Registration is open now. We'll have one practice the first week of December. Um, practices will be on Fridays, games on Saturdays, and then we'll kind of put things on pause for Advent and Christmas season, and then we'll start back up in January, and we'll have a 10-week season culminating in a championship game on March 4th. Play for your parish, awesome. represent your parish, Boys and girls basketball, go to victoryyouthsports.org to register now. There is a discount code available, Little Flower, that was in honor of St. Therese's feast day back at the beginning of October. That's still in effect through this week. 20% like off. 20% off the registration Woo. fee. Um, use it, use it uh, again and again, and tell your friends all about Victory Sports. Victoryyouthsports.org. Go there and register now. First through sixth graders, girls and basketball registration open now. So here's your takeaway from this first part of the show, victoryyouthsports.org. That's one website. <laughs> Two, redcradio.org for the benefit dinner registration, red, the letter C, radio.org. Or go and, how, how about an and, go to brazosvalleygives.org and search for the word red to give for Brazos Valley Gives. So... Lots of activities for you to do. That's your homework assignment. We're about to have a two-minute break. They can do that, probably, most of those activities on the break. Yeah, they really could. And uh, let's let's leave and go out on this. Uh, today is the feast day of Blessed Carlo Acutis. Uh, he was a young teenage boy who died of leukemia, had a great devotion to the Eucharist, and he said... When he died, before he died, he said, I am happy to die because I've lived my life without wasting a minute on those things that do not please God. Let's all Amen. try better to follow that words of wisdom from Blessed Carlo. Pray for us. Okay, welcome back into Red Sea Roundup. This is your host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski, your second Wednesday of the week, second Wednesday of the month uh, host here. You could be listening to us on 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. We've got a live guest this morning, Katie Faust. She's the director of Them Before Us, a global children's rights movement. 
You are welcome to call in if you'd like at 85 Love Red Sea. That's 855 683 7332 and ask a question as we are going along this morning. Um, before I before I bring Katie on, I wanted to uh, just just bring up that we as Catholic Christians we have a, a commitment to the domestic church. The the that marriage is the union of one man and one woman uh, for the union of those of those two and for the procreation of children. And we all know quite well that. Um, that that definition of marriage, that understanding of marriage and family, is uh, is under assault. It's it's been questioned. It's been um, redefined in uh, the Western world, and it is continuing to be redefined and uh, distorted. Um, right up to this very week, um, just this little news item here in um, New York State. There was a ruling by a civil court of the city of New York um, that, in its ruling, essentially is at least opening the door to now multi-person relationships, uh, polyamory, polygamy. Um, All of this, I would submit, a fallout of the 2015 Obergefell decision, which you could say is itself fallout of um, the court cases uh, like Gonzalez v. Texas in 2003 that um, made sodomy um, legal, Um, the Supreme Court cases that um, made contraception uh, legally available, now, Roe v. Wade, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, has changed things a little bit, that landscape a little bit, um, but there's still the possibility of abortion um, in various states, uh, even though some other states have uh, foreclosed that possibility. And we know that uh, much of this was foretold in various ways in Pope Paul VI's uh, encyclical letter, 1968, Humana Vitae, which explained uh, why artificial contraception is um, is against the law, and 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 some of the the societal challenges and difficulties that are going to come in the wake of the um, availability of artificial contraception. Now, my guest this morning, Katie Faust, she is not a Catholic, but she is a Christian. Uh, so we're we're probably not you know we're not necessarily going to line up. Uh, perfectly on every single issue, but as you're going to discover, her passion for explaining and articulating this idea of a global children's rights movement so perfectly addresses so many of these concerns and brings them back to the to, to, to the real central issue, which is the natural right of children to their mother and their father, the natural right of children to know their biological identity, to know their biological origin, to have a family of origin, to have that they have a right, a natural right to the parenting of their mother and their father. So 
I'm very, very pleased to bring on to the program Katie Faust, the founder and director of Them Before Us. Good morning. Good morning, Thaddeus. Very good to, to, to join you this morning. Um, I, I know that you're coming to us rather early in your part of the country, so I, I appreciate you doing that, uh, that little bit of suffering for us. Oh, yeah. It's not that bad. I've already been uh, up, cooked breakfast, got a couple kids out of the house, did a little workout. So awesome. we're, we're, I'm actually fueled up, lots of coffee. This is going to be great. Okay, great. Well, <clears throat> why don't we first, until you, before you, having you tell us how you got into this line of work, please again and flesh out for, for where I, I dropped the ball, what Them Before Us is and what its mission is. Yeah. What we are is we are a global children's rights movement that defends children's rights to their mother and father. So we uh, have a long history of fighting for children's natural right to life, and we are making gains in the culture and in the courts because we are advocating firmly on behalf of that um, natural child right. We need to take that same approach into the marriage and family world because ultimately all questions about marriage and family from the ruling about this new male thruple that has been declared, you know, a marriage and a family by this New York court judge um, back to, I would say the origins of that, that legal evolution, no fault divorce Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. forward to 2015 and the legalization of same sex marriage. And then into areas of um, reproductive technologies Mm -hmm. that all of these different movements, whether it's a cultural movement towards, you know, exalting adult sexual identity and sexual expression as the highest good to legal evolutions and changes away from um, marriage as an institution centered around the well-being of children and these new dystopic technologies that are custom designing children and treating them as commodities. All of those really have one thing in common, and that is um, they disregard, disrespect, and ignore the fundamental rights of children. So children to their mother and father. So if we can establish and argue well that children have a natural right to their own mother and father, we actually solve all of these problems. We actually resolve all of these questions. So that is what we advocate for, is a child-centric view um, and centering the child in all of these conversations about marriage and family. Yes, uh, I wanted to. You talked about um, these dystopic uh, reproductive technologies. I also failed to mention that uh, just recently I saw news that there is some new groundbreaking work. I I hate to say groundbreaking, it makes it sound like it's a good thing. Um, on artificial eggs. Mm-hmm. Have yes. you Have you heard They're about constantly, this? Constantly. Yes. Yes. So. Right now, um, making humans, ha- it's very inflexible, right? Because you have to have sperm, egg, and womb. Mm-hmm. And sperm is pretty easy to access. Um, eggs are a little more difficult, a little more high risk, a little more costly to the woman's body, um, harder to access. Um, and wombs are very difficult to get, right? It's very difficult, very hard to find a woman who will offer her body for nine and a half months. Um, usually it comes with a pretty high price tag. And so big fertility is constantly looking for ways to lower the cost. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that they're doing that is, is developing and the possibility of artificial wombs, which will just lead to factory floors 
of custom ordered children. Um, another way is trying to figure out how you can get the egg from something other than a human egg. How can you create an embryo from using something other than a human egg? This would also open the door of the possibility of having a biological connection um, with a child, for example, with a same-sex couple. So we are constantly experimenting on the tiniest members of our society for the sake of delivering a child product that fits into adult sexual and romantic desires rather than insisting that the family conform to children's fundamental natural rights. Yes, I, I, I think it's so disturbing to me to... Your your book brings this out so well, and we have a tendency to forget, and and it's it's papered over for us in our in our culture. It's not put on the front lines, uh, the front the headlines and the front pages, the way other certain other issues are. But just how commodified, how turned into products that are bought and sold at the cheapest price, children are. Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially, you know, we have been sort of considering children accessories um, or accoutrements Mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways in our world, but we actually are commercializing um, the creation of children um, very often who are separated from one or both of their biological parents through the reproductive technology world. So um, we spend quite a bit of time addressing that in the book. Chapter seven is all about sperm and egg donation. Mm -hmm. And I say donation in quotes because this is not a a benevolent nonprofit. Everybody is buying and everybody is selling. um, And you've got to, you know, you have different different price tags for different offerings. So uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the genealogical bewilderment, the identity struggles that these children experience, the feelings of commodification that they are disturbed that money changed hands over their conception, Mm -hmm. feeling like eugenics played a role in their conception because it did, because these children were literally chosen out of a catalog. And then also the struggles knowing that they have dozens or maybe hundreds of half siblings that they'll never know. So we are really messing with the fundamentals of the child. Um, when we're talking about purchasing one of their genetic parents to create a family, you know, a family that, that is always going to be missing a biological connection and that may be missing a mother or father from the household altogether. Mm-hmm. And then in chapter eight, we talk about surrogacy, how surrogacy is not pro-child technology. It always insists that children sacrifice something that they have a fundamental right and need for, and how surrogacy is not about babies. Like, Everybody on the right, Christians, Catholics, we love babies. That's what not, that is not what surrogacy is about. Surrogacy in practice is about on-demand designer babies shipped worldwide without any of the screening or background checks that adoptive parents like me and like a lot of your listeners have undergone before having an unrelated child placed in their home. So these technologies are not child-friendly. Um, they always violate the rights of children. They must be opposed by anybody who cares about the dignity and well-being of kids. Um, and this is something that we need to get very, very straight on very quickly. Now, this is a such a countercultural cause that you are engaged in, and you are cutting against so many grains um, in our in our Western modern culture. What yeah, that's, dro- what that's drove exactly you right. to what drove you to to take up this crusade? Um, I was angry, honestly. 
um, just like a lot of people, I think, in the last 10 or 12 years, um, the extremism of the progressive left just shocked me um, to the point where I finally decided getting in and advocating on behalf of children is worth the social cost, you know, and the other side will make you pay. They will make you pay if you choose to stand up or challenge um, some of the the sacred planks mm-hmm. of their new woke religion, right? Mm-hmm. And part and parcel of that is the modern family. Mm-hmm. So um, I got involved in this because especially when the marriage debate started to rage, the other side was saying, as part of advancing this, this cause of gay marriage, they were saying kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads. And that, what that means is kids don't care if they have lost their mom or dad, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the greatest lies you could tell about children. Mm-hmm. Children are grieved, harmed, often suffer a lifelong wound when they're not raised by their mom or dad. They, they go to sleep wondering where they are. They feel deep sense of rejection. If their father abandoned them or their mother left them or their parents went through an amicable no-fault divorce and dad moved out of state. I mean, what, what they do is they say, there must be something wrong with me. He must not have wanted me. I must be the problem. I mean, so I just was personally angered and offended that they would weaponize this, this tender wound that children have to advance a political narrative. Um, the other reason I got into this was the absolute demonization of people who supported traditional marriage, uh, saying that the only possible reason to oppose gay marriage is hatred, phobia, and bigotry. Mm-hmm. You know, you hate gay people, which is just laughable except that it's been so effective at silencing pro-traditional marriage people. Um, Because my mom's been in a relationship with her partner since I was about 10 and I love them. I I mean, they've been a part of my life from adolescence until current day. And I I hope that when they think about people that love them, I make the very, very top of the list. So animus is absolutely not a factor with any of this. And yet, there was so little attention given to the true reasons for advocating and supporting natural man-woman marriage. And instead, um, it was just a slander campaign. So those are the two things that really got me into this was the marriage battle. And then once I started writing about marriage, I realized that every single issue, every issue about marriage and family obsessively focuses on what adults want, their desires, their feelings, their identities. And the kids simply had to it. The kids simply had to go along with whatever the adults want, you know, and so I saw that trend when looking at divorce, Mm -hmm. you know, and the narratives around divorce, oh, the parents are so sad and unhappy, and they've fallen out of love, they need divorce, you know, or even issues with infertility, well, I'm struggling with infertility, I need a baby so bad, even if it means that we have to use a sperm donor or an egg donor, Um, you know, the gay marriage was passed really on the backs of stories of adults who maybe have suffered genuinely in their life because of same-sex attraction. And that being the central focus to family redefinition is mm-hmm. the feelings of adults. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these different issues, everything, um, mar- the definition of marriage, polygamy, polyamory, I mean, that story that you just mentioned in, in New York, right? It's all about, oh, these adults and their feelings and their needs and their discrimination and cohabitation even, you know? Transgender parents, parents mm-hmm. transitioning, right? Every single form of modern family mm-hmm. is premised on what adults want, their desires, their sadness, their loss, their longing, their feelings, right? Their hopes, their dreams. It's obsessively focused on adults and what they want and always 
predicated on child loss. So what we've done at Them Before Us is we, we have said children have a fundamental natural right to their mother and father. We make the case that defending that right reduces, decimates all of the major social ills that we are facing in our society today. Mm-hmm. It naturally sets up the safest uh, household in a child's life, right? That is if the child is raised by their own mother and father, that is statistically the safest home they can be in. It is the home where they discover their biological identity, which is something that all children crave. And it is the home that will naturally deliver the perfect gender balance every time and maximize their development because men and women offer distinct and complementary benefits to child rearing. So we build the case from the child and work our way out. First, we establish who children are, what they need, what they have a right to. And then once you answer those questions, all of the other issues about reproductive technologies, what marriage is, when divorce is permissible, who adoption exists for, all of those answer themselves. I'm talking with Katie Faust this morning, uh, the founder and director of Them Before Us, a global children's rights movement. You can call in and ask her a question at 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332. Katie, you make the point, uh, you kind of start your story at the introduction of no-fault divorce laws. Um, Talk talk to us about that. Why was that so injurious to the the future uh, of American children, the uh, generations of American children, and and how did that how did that and why did that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, because of adult centric decision making, right? Um, that we used to have a system of at fault divorce, which is the correct way to conceptualize when it's proper to exit um, a marriage. A marriage, first of all, marriage is the most child-friendly institution the world has ever known because it unites the two people to whom children have a natural right. There are times when divorce may be necessary, but it is like an amputation, right? It is when the gangrene will not stop spreading and you have to do it to save the patient. But these days we are promoting that amputation when there really is no significant sickness, um, and yet kids are going to suffer from that missing limb or that wound for life. So no-fault divorce was predicated on, well, we don't want to find one spouse to be at fault. We don't want to have to, you know, this was Reagan's reasoning. He was the first state. Right. He was the governor, he was the of, governor California. of California. He was the first state mm-hmm, to legalize no-fault divorce because he thought, well, how cool that you have to, like, lie, you know, and say that one of the partners – one of the spouses committed adultery or is abusive so that we can get out of this marriage that, you know, is loveless or where we no longer share connection or whatever it is. Um, And so marriage fundamentally was supposed to be a permanent, lifelong, complementary, exclusive union. And all of those different things, exclusivity, um, permanence, complementarity, they all have child-centric values. Right. Every single one of those has a child-centric benefit. And the permanence aspect of marriage is what no-fault divorce undid. Right? It said, in essence, that a marriage exists to make you happy. And when a marriage stops making you happy, it can stop being a marriage. 
The problem is that children don't just need their mother and father when they're two months old and two years old and 12 years old. They need them forever. They need that permanence. They need mom and dad loving them in their home every single day for life. That is what they need. And so no-fault divorce, uh, at-fault divorce changed into no-fault divorce, which in essence caused this explosion of an epidemic of divorce through the 80s and 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, And actually, you know, you went through a litany of different cases and legal changes to the definition of marriage, you know, from um, Griswold and Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell, and now these motions, these movements that we're making towards polygamy. Um, no-fault divorce was the original redefinition of marriage. Mm-hmm. That, was a, that was the first place where we said, marriage is no longer an institution centered around the well-being of children. It is now a vehicle of adult fulfillment. And when you take that mindset You say, okay, well, if marriage is just a vehicle of adult fulfillment, and there really isn't any child-centric value to it, because Mm -hmm. if there was, you would insist that mom and dad be committed to one another for life. Well, then another man makes me happy, or another woman makes me happy, or three other men make me happy, right? If marriage is just about with whom adults share love and fulfillment and commitment for as long as that they want that to last, well then of course you're going to have polygamy, and of course you're going to have same-sex marriage. Right. So yes, legally, I, all of this began with no-fault divorce. And I think, I think you know, Robert George, who wrote your, your foreword um, to your book, I think as a Catholic he would say artificial contraception, the legalization of that, the, the creation of that, that also played, a, played an immense role in separating uh, marriage and the bond of marriage from... Uh, being about children, it, it turned it turned sex into the um, almost exclusively in many many people's minds about the enjoyment of the mm-hmm. of the adult. It put it it right. affirmatively put the focus on what what are the adults getting out of this, not what is coming out of this, which is a child who needs the permanence, the support, um, the identity, as you talk about so powerfully. Um, the biological identity, the sense of family origin, and the complementary parenting of mother and father. Talk about all those things. I thought that was magnificent how you laid all of those pieces out. Yeah, well, you don't have to be a Catholic to understand the shock to the sexual marketplace that um, the pill inflicted um, on our culture and on our society. So you're exactly right about that. You're exactly right that the birth control also had a huge impact on the way that we conceptualize marriage, family, and children. Yes. Um, it, you know, it separated sex from diapers. Um, that's not my quote. Somebody else said that, but that's exactly right. And it's a false separation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so children have, what happens when you defend children's right to their own mother and father? Um, three incredible things. The first one is um, statistically, a child's own mother and father are the safest, most connected to, most invested in, and most protective of their children. We spend, chapter one of our book is all about why children have a natural right to their mother and father, because we understand that that's somewhat of a new concept for many people, but it is well-established, nearly universally recognized, um, supported by natural law and the best social science that we have. But chapter two is all about why biology matters in the parent-child relationship. We spent a lot of time looking at a lot of different studies about the different levels of connectiveness and investment Mm -hmm. made by biological parents versus unrelated adults, whether that's mother's boyfriend or whether that is the new stepmom or whatever it is. 
that unfortunately, whether due to evolutionary forces or fallen human nature, unrelated adults do not buckle the seatbelts of their stepchildren as often, take them to the doctor as often. They spend less money on their food than they do their own biological children. Like we've unfortunately have had decades of blended families and we are able to see clearly that children are disadvantaged when they are raised by an unrelated adult. And in fact, one of the most dangerous places a child can find themselves in America today is in the home of an unrelated man who especially is left to care for the child themselves. So we look at how rates of child abuse skyrocket when you've got an unrelated adult or an unrelated man, especially in the home. We quote evolutionary biologists Wilson and Daly who talk about how they had these massive data sets um, from Canada and they showed that children were 120 times more likely to be beaten to death by a stepfather or mother's boyfriend than they were their own biological father. So if you care about child safety, um, don't, don't give me that, oh, children need to be safe and loved if you are not going to get behind a child's right to their own mother and father. Because statistically, there's no other system that delivers the same level of safe, safety and protectiveness as a child being raised by their own married biological mother and father. Okay, so that's the, the first amazing thing, thing that happens. What's the next thing? The next thing is only those two adults, only mom, their own mom and their own dad, grant something that children crave, long for, and search for. Mm -hmm. And that is their biological identity. And this is something that we have dismissed on the right for a long time because we have been so protective and defensive of, a, of adoption. Right? We love adoption. We understand that adoption is a just society's response to children who have lost their parents. But for too long, it has meant that we have diminished the importance of biological identity mm. to children. Mm. Now, interestingly, the adoption world has recognized this, and they have swung drastically from closed adoptions, which were the norm about 50 years ago, to today, where 95% of adoptions have some degree of openness, because social workers recognize that children benefit from as many connections with their first family as possible, even if they can't be raised by them, right? There's something important to kids about knowing from whom they came. And now we have decades of use of third-party reproductive technologies, especially sperm donation. Those children who are created through sperm donation are now 30, 40, 50 years old. And they talk about how they suffered different identity struggles. Some of them said, I couldn't even look in the mirror at myself because I didn't recognize the person that was staring back at me. It was incredibly destabilizing. Mm. And especially before the advent of these at-home DNA kits, you would have kids that would spend years calling different county clerks and finding different death and birth certificates so they could recreate their family tree and seek in any way possible to find some genetic connection with the missing half of their heritage. And so this idea that children don't care who raises them, that it's just the donor, that love makes a family, it's a lie. Children absolutely crave the knowledge and the love of the two people responsible for their existence, that biological identity. And that is something that we have been ignoring for far, far too long, often in the service of promoting these new modern families. It's it's ironic that, uh, before you get to the third thing, it's, it's ironic that biological identity and the need for identity 
on the part of children is muted, erased, shoved off to the side of the stage in an age known for battles about identity, identity politics. Why That's is exactly that? exactly right. But <laughs> Right, because if a child has a right to their mother and father, and if that biological identity and the importance of that biological identity and even the importance of the safety that comes with being mm-hmm. raised by those two adults, mm-hmm. it's a wrecking ball for notions of modern family. Mm-hmm. If this is true, which it is, what that means is adults can't have what they want sometimes. What that means is adults would have to acknowledge, I am harming this child. I am putting them at an increased risk. I am violating their rights so that I can live as I please. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's problematic, right? So it's better to say, if the adults are happy, the kids, are, kids will be happy. It's better to say, well, love makes a family. Biology is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's easier to say, kids don't need moms and dads. They just need to be safe and loved, right? Those, those catchphrases have to do a lot of heavy lifting mm-hmm. to override the statistical realities, right? And even the stories of the kids themselves who have come out of these modern families and, and new technological um, developments in reproductive technologies. And so if, if we were to acknowledge that children have a right to their biological mother and father, that it statistically sets them up to be safe and loved and thrive, if it stabilizes their identity um, in a way that no other adults or relationship can, what that means is all adults would have to conform to that right. All adults, single adults, married adults, gay adults, straight adults, fertile adults, infertile adults. Everybody has to conform to these fundamental child rights or they would have to verbally acknowledge I'm harming kids and their loss is inconsequential to my own sexual and personal fulfillment. And that's not something most people are willing to say. Mm -hmm. That's right. So what's the third thing that happens when we put children's right to their mother and father, their biological identity at the center of the conversation? Yeah, if we can respect children's fundamental right to both of their parents, you will automatically get the perfect gender balance in the home. And it just stuns me that especially the left is supposedly values male and female complementarity, let's say, or male and female representation um, in all different kinds of institutions, right? They will celebrate the addition of a female to the Supreme Court justice, as long as she aligns with their ideological perspective, right? They celebrate having um, female representation on publicly held boards. Um, they seem to believe that the female voice or male-female representation is important in various institutions. And yet they have campaigned relentlessly to destroy the one institution that gets the gender balance exactly right every time, and that is the natural family. And that representation, you know, to use their words, of one female and one male parent in the home maximizes child development. That, you know, we need to disavow this notion that men make good mommies and moms make good daddies. They are different. Um, Women don't mother, men don't father. You know, you look at the ways that male and female differences just in their bodies, in their chemical, in their hormones, in their brains, 
all of that actually expresses those differences express themselves most starkly and most importantly in the theater of the home. Um, you know, I talk a lot about how moms naturally are concerned with child safety, right? You, if there's, if you're at a playground, there's one parent that's constantly saying, be careful, be careful. And there's another parent that's constantly saying, I think you can get a little bit higher if you just pump, pump a little bit more, right? If you get a running start, you're going to be, you're going to be able to launch and make it across that, you know, that, that, um, the, the sand box or whatever it is. Like I just saw that yesterday, the dad's like, maybe you can do it. And, you know, one is focused on like equity and um, stability and caregiving, right? Moms tend to care for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, dads tend to play with kids, right? And that's very focused on mom's higher levels of oxytocin and dad's higher levels of testosterone. You know, moms tend to simplify their language right down to the child's two-year-old level so that they understand every word she's saying, okay, time to go to bed. And dad's talk to their kids like they talk to everyone else. Hey, dude, it's way past your bedtime. looks like you need to like get up and go. And so like you've got a parent that's constantly simplifying um, and, and making their words accessible and a parent that's constantly expanding their cognitive development. So it's amazing, right? You are going to get nearly everything that you need in terms of fundamental child development if you simply have a male and female parent in the home. So Respecting the fundamental rights of children is the complete package. It's obviously not a guarantee. There are still some times where kids who grow up in that intact married biological home, they struggle. They can. But there is no other system that we have discovered as humans that will launch children beyond that, right? This Katie, is the fundamental baseline. We've got seven, seven minutes, and I do want to give you some time to talk um, at length about the issues of donor conception and surrogacy, because I think we've I think we've established the counterweight to same sex parenting um, th- with this discussion we just had. But I want you to talk about the threat of um, surrogacy and donor conception and how them before us a child centered focus answers that threat. Yeah. So we've already talked about how these technologies commodify children, how it destabilizes their identity, um, how there's a eugenics aspect of this that really disturbs the children created through these technologies. Um, But I think the best way for your audience to understand, because a lot of the time we empathize with the people who are struggling with infertility, um, or we empathize with the single woman who has not found Mr. Wright yet and, and her biological clock is ticking. Or we empathize with our friends who are gay or lesbian who would make incredible mothers or fathers. Um, and so one big way that we contrast, um, that we try to point out why this is child harming technology is by contrasting it with adoption. Because adoption, um, a lot of people will say, well, isn't third-party reproduction just like adoption, because in both of those situations, a child's being raised by an unrelated adult. And if adoption is good, then aren't these third-party reproductive technologies good as well? And the answer is no. That actually, when you look at it from a child-centric perspective, these are exactly opposite, right? So adoption is an institution centered around the well-being of children. 
Reproductive technologies are a marketplace centered around the desires of adults. So I used to work at the largest Chinese adoption agency in the world. Um, and the goal of our agency was not to get a kid for every adult. The goal was to find parents for every child. So the first big difference in these two areas is in adoption, the child is the client. If adoption is successful, that child will go home with an adult who will treat them just as, they, as if they were born to them. In reproductive technologies, the adults are the client. The goal is to get them a baby at any cost, regardless of the cost to the child's natural rights. And honestly, the baby making industry, big fertility, with, coupled with IVF, violates more embryonic life than the abortion industry does. So that's, if your audience is unaware of how IVF violates children's right to life, um, get the book. We talk a lot about that as well. But also, it violates their right to their mother and father. They don't care if a child's going home with a biological parent. Um, the goal is to give the adults what they have paid for. And that is a problem, right? So adoption centers the process around the well-being of the child, reproductive technologies centered around the desires of adults. Another huge difference is when adoptive parents like me and like many of the people listening here, I'm sure, when they want to petition to have an unrelated child placed in their home, we go through extensive screening and vetting and background checks exactly because the adoption world recognizes that it is risky to place a child with an unrelated adult. And that's exactly as it should be. We should have to prove that we are going to provide a safe home for kids. In the world of third-party reproduction, especially surrogacy, there is no screening, there is no vetting, there is no background checks. Oftentimes, these couples or singles leave the hospital with an unrelated child with no nothing, no background checks, no nothing. We already have cases that we detail in Chapter 8 of the book of people procuring children through surrogacy specifically for the purpose of child exploitation. There are no safeguards here, right? Um, this is about delivering a child product to the adults. And finally, we have one study that compares outcomes between children created through third-party reproduction and adoptees. And even though the children created through sperm donation in that study were being raised by at least one biological parent and the adoptees were raised by neither biological parent, the adoptees fared better. And that is because in both of these situations, there is a loss, there is a wound, right? The child is dealing with the absence of one or both biological parents. And yet, the kids that were adopted fared better. Why? Because they are being raised by the adults who are seeking to mend their wound mm -hmm. versus children created through sperm donation who are being raised by the adults who inflicted the wound. And that creates quite a distinction when it comes to the ways that children are going to process and heal from their grief. The adoptee can openly share their questions, their thoughts, and their wounds with their parent, who will likely jointly mourn with them and walk through it with them, versus the child of sperm or egg donation, who if they were to voice their loss or their pain, they would be talking to the person who inflicted it. And that usually means that they process alone and never heal. Katie, thank you so much. We're reaching the end of the interview. I want to let you finish. Again, we're talking to Katie Faust, founder of Them Before Us. 
go buy the book then before us. You can get it wherever good books are sold. But I want you to finish by talking to us about subscribe, socialize, share, and study. Yeah. So subscribe um, at the go to thenbeforeus.com. Drop down to the bottom of the page. Subscribe. Get our newsletters. We put something out every week. There, there is so much happening. We have so many opportunities. We are reaching so many people. We are in so many different countries, and we are small. But this message is mighty, um, and so we have more influence than than we deserve, which amazes me. Get it? Like, like, stay up with us. Follow us on social media. Um, find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Um, like, stay connected with us there. Share what we're doing. This changes minds. These, mm-hmm. these interviews that we do, these articles that we write, when you look at things from a child-centric perspective, you will change people's minds. Share your story. If you grew up without a mother or father, if your parents went through a divorce and you are still suffering from it like most are, if you were created through third-party technologies, if you had a same-sex parent or a transgender parent, send me your story. I will change the world with it. I promise. Thanks, Katie. Um, And then also, we've got a study guide. So grab our study guide and lead your friends through this book. All right. Katie Faust, thanks so much for your time. Stay on the line. Red Sea Roundup. Join us again next week. God bless.